Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. evening we're going to be in 1st Kings 7 and the last time we saw we looked at the building the temple of God and today we'll look at the contrast with the building of Solomon's palace and his complex and then also it'll go back to some of the temple furnishings and the symbolism behind it so starting with verse 1 it says but Solomon took 13 years to build his own house so he finished all his house remember we left off with He took seven years to build the temple of God. He takes 13 years to build his own house. He also built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits. It's with 50 cubits and its height 30 cubits with four rows of cedar pillars and cedar beams on the pillars. And it was paneled with cedar above the beams that were on 45 pillars, 15 to a row. There were windows with beveled frames in three rows and windows... Uh, was opposite window in three tiers. And all the doorways and doorposts had rectangular frames and window was opposite window in three tiers. He also made the hall of pillars. It was, its length was 50 cubits and its width 30 cubits. And in front of them was a portico with pillars and a canopy was in front of them. Then he made the hall for the throne, the hall of judgment where he might judge And it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. And the house where he dwelt had another court inside the hall of like workmanship. Solomon had also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken as wife. All these were of costly stones hewn to size, trimmed with saws inside and out from the foundation to the eaves and also on the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, large stones, some 10 cubits or 15 feet and some 8 cubits. And above were costly stones hewn to size and cedar wood. The great court was enclosed with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams. So were the inner court of the house of the Lord and its vestibule of the temple. I guess you could really appreciate this if you're in construction, if you're in a builder. For the rest of us, let me try to make it digestible. So basically we see Solomon's own palace and sort of like the civil government building. I'm not sure how all these structures were interconnected, but I'll do my best. It's plausible that Solomon, uh, his palace contained a cluster of buildings, and that kind of helps me understand. So what we'll do is, uh, I'm going to show some slides, and we'll put up the first slide. Now, there's a whole profession of what's called biblical archaeology. You know, I love the people who say, oh, the Bible's made up, stories... Then you challenge them on it. They don't know what they're talking about. They don't know where they heard it. They don't know anything about the Bible uh, because it's not only this has been going on for many years, digging places. The Bible says it's, you know, how many miles over here to this city? People put a shovel in the ground and they start brushing things off and they find stuff. They find coins. They find images. So the Bible is filled with facts. And then when archaeologists go into the Holy Land, they actually find these things. So this is a... Again, different architects and stuff, different archaeologists look at basically the findings that they found on the Temple Mount and such, 
and they put together an idea of what everything would have looked like. So on the Temple Mount, you see the temple over here, right? And then you see uh, some different things going on. Uh, this would be Solomon's cluster, okay, of his buildings that we're talking about. The house of the forest of Lebanon here, the house of Pharaoh's daughter here, uh, the court, the throne hall, the hall of pillars, you know, and Solomon's house. If we could put up the second slide. So this is more from an aerial view. Again, if you were in a helicopter, this would be, you know, the temple and its structures, the labor, the altar. And then here would be Solomon's cluster of buildings with his house, etc., etc. So it's pretty interesting if you think about it. Like I said, the more they find stuff, <laughs> stones, the artifacts, the more they document it and the more they can make a picture of what it really would have looked like. Now, this would be similar to, you know, the, this cluster of buildings. And I think that even today in our government, we take a lot from the Romans, the Greeks, even the Jews back in the day from Israel. Uh, it's something that, hey, it worked for them. Why don't we might as well try it for ourselves? But if you look at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., what do you see all within a few blocks? You see the White House, the Supreme Court, right, the building, and both houses of Congress within a few blocks of each other. Makes sense. If you're going to govern, you're going to rule, you want to have all the different civil government, municipal complex type of things in the same area. So Solomon's house or palace to the hall of the forest of Lebanon, which was the dimensions a cubit was roughly a foot and a half, so the dimensions would be basically 150 feet long by 75 feet wide by 45 feet, feet high, which would have given us over 11,000 square feet. He kept his military equipment and other things like that. So, you know, it's, it's when you try to think about it in your mind, it's, it's interesting. I found it interesting. Three, the halls of pillars, uh, 75 feet by 45 feet, almost 44,000 square feet. I'm not sure what he used that for. Some of it was probably ego-driven. I mean, if, let's just be honest. This was Solomon that we're talking about. Read Ecclesiastes when you get a chance, and you can see what happened at the end of his life. You know, all these ego-driven things that he did, all the empires that he built, but because of, he walked away from God, he was kind of depressed at the end. You know, it was, what's it all about? Uh, four, the throne room or the judgment hall where Solomon sat to hear legal matters. Five, the separate palace or living arrangement for Pharaoh's daughter, which was one of his many wives. I don't know what happened when he started accumulating all these wives. He must have had to build things all over the place. Time to put another addition on the house. I can't imagine that, but, and that was his sin. It wasn't, he wasn't supposed to do that. Six, the great court. Now, again, I, I also think of the mall. You know, you go into the mall and it says you are here. You kind of go in through a hallway and then all these stores are clustered off of the main hallway. Any mall goers here this evening? <laughs> so as we read, um, Solomon spared no expense. Pillars, decorations, hewn stones. Again, I keep, I'm going to keep repeating this and then bring it up at the end. Seven years to build God's house, 13 years for his. Solomon had many weaknesses. And one of his weaknesses was extravagance. And, you know, your kids watch what you do. Our kids watch what we do. And Rehoboam, his son, saw his father's extravagance, and the people were crying out, you know, the taxes were too heavy, or, you know, all the things that they were, the people were burdened with, with the king. And Rehoboam had a real attitude with the people and said, you think my father was bad, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to be worse. 
So, of course, that led to a revolt and split the kingdom. So nobody can tell me that the extravagance was good. Prosperity gospel people like to point to this, but they don't point to the fact that it was sinful and it was wrong. They just don't know their Bibles that well. In Ecclesiastes, Solomon chronicles his building projects, uh, again, most of them for his own pleasure. He had a panoply of possessions, so to speak. In other words, he had a lot of stuff. Um, and it was clear at the end of Ecclesiastes, again, this didn't satisfy him. I have to digress for a moment. Men and women tend to have ego issues. When you have one person who's just in charge of so much, it sometimes goes to their head, and they build empires. I think what's really tragic is when that happens in ministry. It's got to be bigger. We've got to have more. We've got to have this. Well, that church is doing that, so we've got to have that. We've got to add this to it. And then you get, which Calvary people don't like to talk about, Calvary Chapel Fort Lauderdale. And then the whole uh, kingdom comes crashing to the ground, and the Christians go, I don't understand. It was Disneyland. It was this. It was that. You don't understand. Maybe that's part of the problem with these empires that are built in the church. You know, it, it concerns me because Christians are so event-driven that I don't know that a lot of Western Christians, if they could have survived 100 years ago, because it's really, it's about feeding our flesh, but then putting a Christian stamp on it so it's good. I talk about a message that I actually listened to recently, and I got pumped when I listened to it. It was pretty good. But the irony is that Sometimes from the outside, big, big, big seems like successful. But maybe they don't realize that it's just a big machine that the wheels are turning. You know, it could be they forgot about ministry altogether. Verse 13, not all the time. Now King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali. And his father was a man of Tyre, a bronze worker. He was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze. So he came to King Solomon and did all of his work. Now we're going to go shift back to the temple of God. And this is not Hiram the king, this is another Hiram. It could have been a, a common name back then. But Solomon needed him because he was a very skilled man. I kind of think of today, you know, you got an issue with your water, you call a plumber. <laughs> if you want nice woodworking, you call a carpenter, right? You, t you call the stone cutter for that. And so this guy was a, a metal worker. He, was, um, a, he just had the type of brain. He, he knew how to do this stuff, and Solomon used him for a lot of his projects. I like that the Bible gives people who the world would look at as insignificant, that he gives them honorable mention. But verse 15 and he cast two pillars of bronze, each one 18 cubits high, and a line of 12 cubits measured the circumference of each. Then he made two capitals of cast bronze to set on top of the pillars. The height of one capital was five cubits, and the height of the other capital was five cubits. He made a lattice network with wreaths of chain work for the capitals which were on the top of the pillars, seven chains for one capital and seven for the other capital. So he made the pillars and two rows of pomegranates above the network all around to cover the capitals that were on top, and thus he did for the other capital. And the capitals which were on top of the pillars in the hall were in the shape of lilies, four cubits. The capitals on the, on the two pillars also had pomegranates above by the convex service which was next to the network. And there were 200 such pomegranates in rows on each of the capitals all around. Then he set up the pillars by the vestibule of the temple. He set up the pillar on the right and called its name uh, Joachim. And he said, 
and he set up the pillar on the left and called his name Boaz, familiar name. The tops of the pillars were in the shape of lilies, so the work of the pillars was finished. So he has these, you know, you got the temple, and, and we talked about the temple, and it steps going up in this little porch area, and these two huge doors, and the priests would come in in, in that one room, and then the Holy of Holies, the, only the high priest could come in once a year and offer the blood of the sacrifice. But, so you have these pillars. They're 27 feet tall, and they're 18 feet in circumference, which means that they had a diameter of six feet, right? And they go in front of big, big guys. I mean, six feet, a diameter, and then 18 feet in circumference. How do I know that? Because I paid attention in school. <laughs> circumference equals pi times diameter. Anybody remember that? I had some really good teachers, uh, public school teachers, when I was a kid, and I remembered a lot of stuff. So I was playing around with the numbers. I was like, how, how big was it from end to end? Six feet. So one was named Joachim, which means he establishes, and the other was named Boaz, meaning in him is strength. Let me break the cadence from the message for a moment to make an application. Reminders, reminders, reminders. Symbolism, symbolism, symbolism. You know, we forget sometimes as humans that God's there <laughs> and that he cares for us and he, there's expectations he has of us. And, you know, everything about this, it was a building. And people could read this and go, ah, yawn, it's a building. I'm not into building projects. I like this or I like that. But everything that he made had significance to it. The first is, the first pillar was he establishes. As you walked up and you saw this grand, bronze, incredible pillar on the one side, he establishes. And that's the truth. God does establish. You know, the, the smart person realizes no matter how far they get in life, it was God that helped them to get there. We have to give him credit. The other thing is, and, and I, I say this too in ministry, he establishes. You know, it's him that does the ordaining, the anointing. We don't, you know, you don't have to have a title, but still be established by God, and, and we should be comfortable knowing that it's God that sets us, sets us up, right? The other, Boaz, meaning in him is strength. And we read, you know, um, about Boaz as an actual person, but one of the pillars was called, in him is strength. And sometimes I think, well, I don't think I know. We, we kind of go on our own. And everybody in this room has some type of talent. I don't care how young you are, how old you are. Everybody in this room has a talent. There's something that you're good at. But it's in him that we have our strength. We have to be careful when we start relying on our own abilities, our own intelligence, our own degrees, our own things that we've mastered in life. Right? In him, in God, is strength. Verse 23. Then he made the sea of cast bronze, ten cubits from one brim to the other. It was completely round. Its height was five cubits, and a line of thirty cubits measured its circumference. And below its brim were ornamental buds encircling it all around, ten to a cubit, all the way around the sea. The ornamental buds were cast in two rows when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three looking toward the north. They weren't real. They were carved oxen. Are fashioned, three looking toward the, the west, three looking toward the south, and three looking toward the east. The sea was set upon them, and all their back parts pointed upward, inward. Excuse me. It was a handbreadth thick, and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom. It contained 2,000 baths. So the sea of bronze was constructed. It was huge. It was really like it was a pool of fresh water is what it was. 
And this was for the priests to have fresh water for when they did their ceremonial washing. So this pool labor basin rested on these 12 fashioned oxen, three facing each direction, north, east, south, and west. And this basin held between 10 and 12,000 gallons of water, 15 foot diameter, seven and a half feet high, and each bath being about six gallons. So you do the math, no matter which way you do it, through baths or through measurements, you can get the same figure, which is awesome. So, you, you know, so it was pure water for the priest to wash in when they serve God. I want to read one scripture, Exodus 30, 20, about the priests. They had a very important job. And they pointed to a future when the Holy Spirit would indwell us and teach us and convince us and convict us, etc. But the priests, very strict what they could do and what they couldn't do because they were representing God. So it says, when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. So if a priest went in and he didn't wash and he was careless about his job, he would have been struck down. And you might say, well, that's harsh. Remember, they're representing God. Moses didn't get to go into the promised land because in his anger, he misrepresented God by striking the rock. Water is a picture of purification, consecration, holiness, all a picture of what Christ and the Holy Spirit would bring. So it was very important that they ministered exactly the way God said they had to wash. Now, in the time of the judges, right, everybody did what was right in his own eyes. The priests were, were often left field too. They were gone. They were, they were MIA. So it was, the country was leaderless. It was rudderless. People kept rebelling against God. But the priests had an, a responsibility to do the right thing, to teach people God's word, and to be that almost, again, a type, a, a, a fallible type, because they're humans, but a type of the Holy Spirit to come. The oxen probably represented service, duty, and strength. And strength. And in him, in God, is strength. Uh, now, you would see the 12 is a, is a common number for the tribes of Israel, and later the disciples. 12 was a picture of government. And government... The, the ones who govern were supposed to be the ones that served the ones they were governing. Unfortunately, in our country, we've lost sight of that. But that was the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. You've heard the expression public service. Today we hear political things and we, we have a bad taste in our mouth no matter which party it is because they seem to be serving themselves and not serving the interests of the people. So it's amazing. When we go to what God says, everything makes sense. When we go digress from that, we have nothing but problems. Um, the oxen were facing north, east, south, and west, all four corners of the earth, a universal atonement in scope, as opposed to limited atonement. Don't confuse that with universalism, okay? A universal atonement. God died, Jesus died for the world. God set his people in the middle of the known world so they could be a light to the Gentiles, and then, of course, the Messiah would be the perfect fulfillment of that. Let me go back to the oxen. Service, duty, and strength. This job was not a loafing job. The priests didn't have an easy job. They collected tithes because God wanted them to focus on serving Him and being a go-between, a mediator to the people. Right? Again, it's a precursor, a prefigurement. 
And today, I think sometimes we lose sight of that too. Service, duty, and strength. When we serve the Lord, it's not for quitters. It's not for fickle people. It's when we step up to serve the Lord, we should do it in His strength, and we should do it if He's called us to do it, that we should, can do it as long as He's called us to do it. That's important. And again, we rely on Him for that strength. Verse 27 it says, he also made ten carts of bronze. Four cubits was the length of each cart. Four cubits its width and three cubits its height. And this was the design of the carts. They had, uh, they had panels. Let me continue reading. They had, well, you know what? Let's do this. Put the, if we could put up the, uh, the third slide. I kind of had it at the end of this group, but I kind of want it before we get it out of our heads here. Uh, so you see the temple. You see the bronze pillars, right? And again, the detail and the convex and the, the pomegranates and there's just so much detail and I'm going to talk about that too, right? Here would be the, the altar for, for the burnt offerings. You could see the smoke coming up and you can see, you know, a rendition. And again, this is a picture of the priests, right? And this huge, it was like a swimming pool of fresh water on top and then the oxen all the way around, all 12 of them holding up that pool. And then what we're going to read about is these little mini mini pools that held 240 gallons apiece and they could wheel these things around and use them. And it was a good system. It was like a subsystem. So it's very interesting when you think about it. God doesn't say, hey, just go do this. He gives incredible detail down to the, to the pomegranates and the, and the lilies that are supposed to be fashioned on this thing. And I'm going to get to that. So let's go back. Let's do 27 again. So he made 10 carts of bronze. Four cubits was the length of each cart. Four cubits its width and three cubits its height. And this was the design of the carts. They had panels and the panels were between frames. On the panels were between the frames were lions, oxen, and cherubim. And on the frames was a pedestal on top. Below the lions and oxen were wreaths of pl plated work. Each cart had four bronze wheels and axles of bronze and its four feet had supports under the laver were supports of cast bronze beside each wreath. Its opening inside the crown at the top was one cubit in diameter, and the opening was round, shaped like a pedestal, one and a half cubits in outside di diameter, and also on the opening were engravings, but the panels were square, not round. Under the panels were the four wheels, and the axles of the wheels were joined to the cart. The height of the wheel was one and a half cubits. The workmanship of the wheels was like the workmanship of a chariot wheel, their axle pins, their rims, their spokes, and their hubs were all of cast bronze. And there were four supports at the four corners of each cart, and the supports were part of the cart itself. On the top of the cart, at the height of half a cubit, uh, was, a perfect, was perfectly round. And on the top of the cart, its flanges and its panels were of the same casting. On the plates, Wow, I mean, you ever get like a box that you got, like a barbecue grill that you got to put together and put the pin here and the wheel here and then put the nut and then you do something wrong, you got to take everything apart again. But God is so specific in what he wanted. You know, well, these were square, not round. You know, make sure you do that. On the plates of, of its flanges and on its panels, he engraved cherubim or angels, lions and palm trees, wherever there was a clear space on each with wreaths all around. After this manner, he made the ten carts, all of them were of the same mold, one measure and one shape. Then he made ten lavers of bronze. Each laver contained 40 baths, 240 gallons, and each laver was four cubits. On each of the ten carts was a laver, and he put five carts on the right side of the house and five carts on the left side of the house, and he set the sea on the right side of the house toward the southeast. 
So you got these carts, again, subsystem of the main washing system, as we saw in the picture. Great picture, by the way. Um, water, again, it has multiple meanings in the Bible, notwithstanding the needs of the physical body. How long can we go without water? A lot less than we can go without food. It's important. In addition to what we spoke of, water was also symbolic of the Spirit of God and the Word of God, which we need to be washed in as well. So look at the symbolism there. Water was extremely important. Right? Jesus said, He who believes in me, torrents of living water will gush forth from him. And again, he was indicative of the Holy Spirit. So you see, they had to get it right because it really was, when the New Testament came, it explained everything in the Old Testament. So even as I'm reading, you might come up with an a, a application I didn't even think of. It's in there. Okay, let's start with beauty. Pomegranates, lions, angels, oh my. <laughs> his, his creation is beautiful. Probably something the priests could admire, pretty decorations while they were serving. You know, men like decorations too. When my wife decorates, I think, wow, that's pretty. So they got to see all these beautiful fashions, and, and um, it was nice. In addition, so you got beauty. You also have an element of fastidiousness. In other words, attention to every little detail, right? God had so much concern for the little things, and he wanted his people to have that concern too. And you know what? We also need to have concern when we serve the Lord. Unfortunately, sometimes in Christendom, Christians will give everything they can to their boss because they don't want to get fired. That's not a good reason, by the way. Or they want to get promoted. But when they serve the Lord, they're sloppy. They're late. They don't show up. They don't listen. This is, I've heard this since I've been a Christian. And uh, it's not good, you know. How does that work? We give everything to our temporal bosses, but when we serve the Lord of, of hosts, the Lord of all creation, we're sloppy. It's not right. Verse 40. Hiram made the labors and the shovels and the bowls, so Hiram finished doing all the work that he was to do for King Solomon on the house of the Lord. The two pillars, the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on top of the two pillars, the two networks coverings, the two bowl-shaped capitals which were on top of the pillars. 400 pomegranates for the two networks, two rows of pomegranates for each network. God really likes pomegranates. And I actually hear that pomegranate juice is very, very good. It has antioxidants, so we need to read the Bible more. It has a lot of good stuff in here. Uh, to cover the two bowl-shaped capitals that were on the top of the pillars. The ten carts, the ten labors on the carts, one sea, uh, and twelve oxen under the sea. The pots, the shovels, and the bowls, all these articles which Hiram made for King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of burnished bronze. In the plain of the Jordan, the king had them cast in clay molds between Sukkoth and Zaratan, and Solomon did not weigh all the articles because there were so many. The weight of the bronze was not determined. Remember when I talked about strength, duty, service? You know, I, I also have issue with any ministry that doesn't go completely through the Bible. You think this was easy for me to, to make it interesting, you know, building and detail and stuff? Um, you know, when we serve the Lord, it's not for lightweights. You know, if God calls us to do it, he'll empower us to do it, but we got to do it. And I, I know Christians that go to a church or a, a ministry for 10, 20 years, and they don't know their Bibles because the pastor just covers the same circuit, love, forgiveness, God's love, love, forgiveness. That's not the way it should be. We need to go through the entire word. That's why it's there. So you see these miscellaneous items that the priests needed to do their jobs. Some of them seemed insignificant. I'm going to get to that point. We're almost done. 
48, Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold on which was the showbread, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the right side, five on the left, in front of the inner sanctuary, with the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers of gold. So we have the altar. Now this is, if we could put up the last slide. Okay, and again, this is an aerial view. Remember, here's all Joaquin and Boaz, the stairs that come up, the porch. This is where the priests ministered, and this is where the high priest came once a year and sprinkled the blood. And we talked about that in the last study. But you had different things. You had this... Um, altar of incense that was right about here and, and the smoke would rise up. And that really was indicative of the prayers of the saints. We find that in Revelation 5. We also find that in Psalm 141, 1 through 2. So it was symbolic. So that would be that one um, altar with the incense. The tables of showbread would be, um, would be in the building as well, along with the lampstands that gave light. So you have these articles in the holy place. The tables of showbread were only lawful for the priest to eat. What does that represent? Well, we, we know if I actually quote this, we'll say, well, Jesus said that, right? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That was in Matthew 4. But that goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 8. <laughs> I love when people say, well, the Old Testament and New Testament are very... No, they're not. They, they, they work in concert with each other. So, bread... Um, was represented, right? Jesus was the manna that came from down, came down from heaven. Um, the Bible says that. We know that there was actually literal manna that came down and fed the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. Um, Jesus is the bread of life. What's the symbol symbolism here? Is that God's ministers need to feed on God spiritually if they're going to serve effectively. It, it is what it is. If we're ministers of God, if we're any way serving God, we need to have a relationship with God, and that's the picture of it. Um, today, we go to the supermarket. We have, we have shakes for the elderly with vitamins and minerals. We have protein bars. We have billion types of bread. We have, you know, all kinds of stuff, like ready-made ready food. Well, back then, they had bread. If you were poor, you really didn't eat meat. You had bread. And you had your starch and your, you know, your minerals and all that kind of stuff. And they, they didn't bleach the heck out of it. So there was more nutrients in it. So God said he made that application. You eat bread, you do well, you live, you don't starve. Well, spiritually, you need to be having a relationship with me. You need to feed on me. Otherwise, you can't get through your life in a spiritual sense. So the last thing that we see is the table, the lampstands, the candelabras, which I had shown. Um, and this really was... a uh, the, you know, they would light it, they would have uh, like little receptacles and they'd have oil and they would keep it burning and that would give light inside the building prior to electricity. But there's also symbolism there. God's light, right? God is light. God's word is, is expressed as light. Jesus is the light of the world. And what does that say about any ministry today that doesn't use the word of God? We need that. What does that say about any ministry that doesn't accurately portray the biblical Jesus? I could take the Bible and manipulate any verse and make Jesus into anything I want him to be. But the biblical Jesus is the Jesus that we form a picture of once we read the entire scripture. 
And that's the thing. Um, God's word can be manipulated. You know? Again, what does that say about a ministry that doesn't have use God's word or the truth about who Jesus really is? Last two verses. So we have more going on here. The basins, the trimmers, the bowls, the, the ladles, and the censers of pure gold, and the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner room, the most holy place, and for the doors of the main hall of the temple. Thus, all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings. David started gathering stuff for his son, but David was not allowed to build the temple. Remember that. He had Solomon do it. And he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So a few things we have to look at as we close. Number one, hinges, wick trimmers, you know, little things that they had, that they had to make. They seemed small. They seemed insignificant. However, without them, service couldn't continue. And this subject keeps coming up. People in the church, well, I don't have a high education. Well, I can't work with my hands. Well, I don't know anything about ministry. Do you have a willing heart? Are you an empty vessel? I say to Christine, if they fill out a ministry application, plug them in somewhere. <laughs> because, and it's great. You, know, you, can't, you can't think, well, I, I don't have much to offer. You know, because everybody has a part. And, and we're all equal. And again, this point keeps coming up. Um, if we didn't have all the little things done in this church, maybe we wouldn't, we'd have to close our doors. Maybe we'd lose people. Right? Setting up for VBS, decorations. Right? Shopping for church events, carpentry work, the, the sidewalks and the, and the, and the uh, parking lot being plowed so people can pull up, light bulbs being replaced. I mean, I can take anything that I'm reading in the Old Testament and make an application now. Two, if you get a chance, check out www.templeinstitute.org. www.templeinstitute.org. They are already making probably have already all made all these utensils that we read about. There will be a third temple built. The Bible tells us that. Read Revelation. It's measured. Go rise. Take a read. Rise and measure the temple of God. It's not here now. But when, when Revelation was written, there was no temple. So what does that tell us? There's going to be a third one. And everything is set in place to put all the stuff in it. It's all been made, or most of it. Pretty interesting, isn't it? We live in exciting times. I mean, I don't think they're Christian by a stretch. I mean, I think they're probably Judaizers and stuff, but, but you can see where the world is heading and what the Bible tells us was going to happen in the future. Two more points. Third point, bronze, usually a symbol of judgment, was all on the outside of the temple. Gold, which was a symbol of deity, oasis, God's splendor, was on the inside of the temple. Outside of God's domain is judgment. However, once we accept what Jesus did, dying on the cross for us, shedding his blood for us, we get to be on the inside. I was blessed to do a funeral of a saint who went home to be with the Lord a few days ago, a 90-year-old man. The guy was saved longer than I'd been alive. He got saved at like 13 or 14. And, you know, nurses and mailmen and everybody, neighbors, everybody loved this guy. He had all those decades that God worked on him. He went from the outside to the inside. 
and he tried to bring other people in to God's kingdom, and he, a lot of it was done through his demeanor and his gentleness. Four, our house, our temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit. How do we look on the outside? How do we look on the inside? Right? How much are we devoted to each? Are we disproportionately devoted to the thing that's not eternal instead of the thing that is internal? The inside versus the outside. Remember, Solomon took seven years to build God's temple, but he took 13 years building his own palace with extravagance. Hmm. Modern Christianity has fallen into the same trap that has trapped mankind for thousands of years. It is not a good thing to use, to make a, a point scripturally by using Solomon. Not a good idea. Greed and self-indulgence is cloaked and justified by the prosperity gospel. It was actually deviously ingenious. We can be as greedy as we want in the church. We could be just as worldly as the rest of the world. All we have to do is call ourselves another denomination. C.J. Mahaney said this, Today the greatest challenge facing Bible-believing American Christians is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Dave Hunt, I think, wrote a book called The Seduction of Christianity. Um, one thing I would ask you to check out, I put it on the church Facebook wall, Pastor David Platt, The Dangers of Worldly Desires. I know a few people that saw it and were blown away by that message. Right? We know that Solomon had it all as far as the world, but he walked away from God at least for a time. And judging from Ecclesiastes, it left him empty and depressed. Again, if you have time, well, I, I suggest that you read Ecclesiastes. It's, um, it's, kinda, it's, it's depressing to read. <laughs> him telling about everything he had, and it's like grasping for the wind. Let's not that, let that happen to us. So I quoted a bunch of people here. I'll have my own quote here. The seeds of seduction are subtly sown. Let me say that again. All S's. The seeds of seduction are subtly sown. I think Solomon started out great. I think he really started out trying to please God. But there were things about his character that he didn't deal with. And they were character flaws. And they became problems later on. It became a problem for him, his family, his kingdom. Split into two. Led to uh, being invaded. There was no unity. Kingdom fought against kingdom from the inside. Sometimes Israel fought against Judah. Brother against brother, like the American Civil War. And Solomon started it all. So I would just say that I think as we read the Bible, sometimes we think that could never happen to me. But the seeds of seduction are sown subtly. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.